I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And tonight we're going to be looking at verses 13. And I will be reading through chapter 21. But I'm really going to be only covering up to 16. Uh, While I have been sick this week, to tell the truth, I have been doing very little other than sleeping. But um, I did manage to watch a uh, a series or a um, a uh, documentary called Goodnight Oppie, which was about the uh, two Mars rovers, Opportunity and Spirit, that were launched in 2004. And although they were only supposed to last for 90 days, they managed to stretch out their mission till 2019 in the case of Opportunity. But by the time they got to uh, 2019, the front wheel on Opportunity had broken. Uh, most of its joints were not working. They actually had to drive it backwards, so they were dragging the, uh, the broken wheel. It had amnesia. They had to stop it from napping on a regular basis and upload its uh, information as quickly as possible. I feel kind of like Oppie at this point in time, so uh, I'm just uh, telling you that. But still, it managed to get its mission done. And uh, hopefully I will be enabled by God uh, to do the same. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. God, our gracious Father, we do thank you so much for your word, the way it inspires us, the way it lights a lamp to our path. It shows us the way home And it also tells us all of the things that you have done for us, done for us before you even created the universe, setting us aside, calling us your own, redeeming us by the blood of your son, and then giving us the power of your Holy Spirit, changing us forever, making us willing to believe in the day of your power, opening our eyes, and then molding us, perfecting us, shaping us, often through a process that we don't particularly appreciate as it's being applied as you conform us to the image of your dear son. I do pray now, Lord, that you would help me to open up this passage and to uh, provide uh, some crumbs for your people that they might uh, have uh, something that would nourish and help them throughout the week. Remind us this is your word, not just to the Ephesian Christians, but to us here and now, and may it change us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 13 through 21. I do remind you this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 
There are, um, believe it or not, and it seems like such a simple and straightforward passage on first reading, there are actually several controversies that theologians have grappled with. I'm only going to be grappling with one today that occur within this uh, particular section we've just read. But I want to start at the beginning where we left off last week. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul is once again reminding them that he is a pastor in chains. He has been imprisoned uh, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christianity, and it's spread for the sake of the Ephesians and their growth in grace, which he considered to be more important, and properly speaking, it was more important than his own freedom. He was suffering for the sake of their salvation in a Roman jail. Uh, Calvin, writing on these uh, lines, he commented, O heroic breast, which drew from a prison and from death itself comfort to those who were not in danger. He says that he endured tribulations for the Ephesians because they tended to promote the edification of all the godly. How powerfully is the faith of the people confirmed when a pastor does not hesitate to set his seal, uh, uh, sorry, does not hesitate to seal his doctrine by the surrender of his life. What Paul was telling them is that the afflictions that I am enduring at the moment are an honor. Uh, I do not see them as a disgrace and you should not see them as a cause of despondency. I am the prisoner not of the Romans. We discussed this before. I am the prisoner of Christ. It is he who has placed me here. And one of the things that we see constantly throughout this epistle is the reminder of God's sovereignty from beginning to end. Before the creation of creation, God had mapped these things out. And it was his intention that Paul would end up in a Roman jail. He had work to do there. We remember how Paul wrote later that, uh, that opportunities to uh, continue to minister even amongst Caesar's household would be opened up for him. And we know that those opportunities uh, occurred and that they were fruitful. So Paul understood that all of these things were happening for a purpose, for God's glory and for their own glory, because they were encompassed in that glory of Christ, united to him, part of his body. They were being caught up in the glory of Christ. Now, he uses an interesting uh, phrase in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is he saying there? Well, he's, uh, he's talking about prayer. Uh, and he's not saying that all prayer has to be offered on your knees. I've discussed it before, but there are three reverential attitudes that are given in the Bible for our prayer. The first, of course, is kneeling, the one that he, uh, um, the one that he mentions here. That's usually uh, a, something that's reserved for private prayer. So we can imagine Paul kneeling in his cell and praying to God the Father. The second is standing. That was the typical place, uh, the typical attitude that one would adopt in congregational worship. And then for really reverential personal prayer, especially when one was pleading or despondent, was lying flat on your face before the Lord. So lying, standing, and kneeling. These are the three great postures of prayer, which we, of course, have replaced with the only standard posture of prayer, which is sitting. We don't actually find that in the, uh, in the Bible, but let's move on before we get uncomfortable. Um, in any event, he speaks of the one you notice here to whom he prays, and who does he say he prays to? I bow my knees to the Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And note he expresses the covenant relationship between the Father and Christ and the way that this interconnects with believers. Uh, It's because he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is their Father, that he is your Father as well. And because of what Christ has done, he is accessible to us through prayer. We can acceptably approach him because of what Christ has done. He is the propitiation. He is the mediator. He is the one who brings us to the Father. We were once, and this is Paul's point that he's been laboring, they were once far off. They were once enemies. They were once removed. But all of the things that stood between them have now been brought down. The wall of separation, not just between Jews and Gentiles, has been removed, but the wall of separation between God and man has been removed by the intercession of Christ. So as they have been united to him by faith, they are united to the Father. He bows his knees to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is that essential interconnectedness that we can't lose. It's impossible for mankind, and we need to understand that because of sin, to go directly to the Father. We can't do it. We need a mediator, someone who will heal the breach between the two of us. We have sinned, and a sinful people cannot enter into the presence of a holy God. Therefore, we need a mediator. We need a redeemer. We need an atonement. We have that in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one whom we go to the Father through, and it is only through him that we are accepted and may address the Father as our Father, because we have entered into, and that's the other point. Notice how the language of Ephesians, and I hope this is resonating in you as you go through this book, notice how familial it is. He's your Father. You're part of his family. That's really the way that he speaks. And so therefore, we can address him as our Father. And that's why Jesus taught his apostles to address God that way. That was a, that was a startlingly familiar way of addressing the Father. Rabbis did not teach their students to address God the Father as our Father who art in heaven, to speak to him in such familial terms. But Jesus does, and Paul encourages that, of course. Now, the word there for family that's used is, um, if you're looking at your text, uh, you'll notice from whom the whole family, this is verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That word for family is patria. And in the Greek, it's a, it's a collective term from the descendants of all the same, fa- uh, uh, the, all the descendants of the same father. So an entire line coming down. And this gives us uh, a vital uh, clue to our identity. Who are we? Well, he is addressed as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our father, and therefore we are part of his family. We're contemplated as the children of God. We've been brought into that relationship by God. And so the patria is not all of creation. It is the subjects of redemption. It is those for whom Christ died. 
those whom he has brought close, the whole family in heaven, therefore. And this is a wonderful idea. Who is the family of God? Who does it consist of? Right this moment, it consists of all those who have been brought into relationship with Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, adopted into that family, made part of the body of Christ, as it's spoken of, but not just us here on earth. And of course, that's an amazing number of people. We have brothers and sisters, not just here in Fayetteville and in America, but throughout the world. I've been, you know, (laughs) privileged to meet just a few of them, but it's been a wonderful experience. But it's not just them. It's those who are in heaven, the church triumphant as well. They are still part of the family of God. They are ever united to God and always will be. And we are united to them. That's the mighty cloud of witnesses who are watching as God's salvation develops here on earth. That is the family of God as he is speaking of it. The company of believers wherever they are, past, present, and of course, future. Because this is a family that's ever growing as more and more people are adopted in. And it will continue to grow until it reaches the last person, the last witness, the last martyr is brought in. And then, of course, will come the end when Jesus comes back uh, to judge the heavens and the earth. And so as, as a child derives his identity and his name from his parents and particularly his father, so Paul tells us you derive your true identity not from the place where you were born, not from the language that you speak, not from the color of your skin, not from any external physical attribute that you might have. You derive your true identity from your Father in heaven. Who are you? If you are united to Christ, you are essentially a Christian. You have God's Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You are something entirely new. You are this wonderful thing that God has begun working on and will complete in glory. And you are more wonderful than you can possibly understand. We get so tied up, don't we, with all the the identities here on earth. But the only identity that Paul is really concerned with is believer and unbeliever. And it it is his glory that he's able to take people from the category of unbeliever and bring them into the category of believer through the preaching of the word. That should be our desire as well. Here is the great message of reconciliation. Not just reconciliation between man and God, but because of the reconciliation between man and God, reconciliation between man and man is possible as we become part of the same family. So, He goes on to talk in verse 16 about what he is praying for. What does he ask for? What does he go to God the Father for? He says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So he goes and he asks him that through his his infinite mercy, through his divine perfection, the riches of his glory, that which can't be held back, can't be hindered, can't be limited, and so on, that he would bestow upon his people this amazing grace whereby they would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now here 
is where the controversy occurs. He prays that they would receive power communicated through the Holy Spirit to be strengthened in the inner man. And here's the problem. All right, it's the definition of inner man. What does he mean? What's he asking for? What is he saying when he asks that they would be strengthened? Well, here, as in so many other places in this letter, theologians diverge wildly. All right, and generally the place where they diverge is over uh, is depending upon their views of anthrop- anthropology and soteriology. What does that mean? Well, anthropology is your view of the nature of man, and soteriology is your view of salvation. And <laughs> as usual, it always curves back to the Pelagian Augustinian dispute here, the old argument between Pelagius and Augustine. Uh, what's that all about? Well, Pelagius was a, uh, a Welsh monk, as you know, and uh, Augustine was the Bishop of Hippo. One was in North Africa, one was in, in Wales. Uh, Pelagius incidentally means man of the sea. Augustine is derived from the name of the Emperor Augustus, but uh, Augustine was uh, writing in his confessions And one of the prayers that he wrote, a wonderful prayer, was grant what thou dost command and command what thou wilt. All right. Now, Pelagius is reading the confessions of Augustine. He's getting more and more disturbed. And when he gets to this line, he just slams the copy down. He is he is infuriated at what uh, Augustine is teaching here. He understood and correctly so that what Augustine is saying is that. Humans are incapable of obeying God's commands to do the right thing unless God grants them the power to do so. Pelagius, on the other hand, strongly disagreed. What he believed was that if God commanded it, we have the inherent power to do it. All right. Now, he believed that that was the case because he believed that men were by their very nature unfallen. Okay, they came into this world kind of tabula rasa. Now, because of the fall, there's evil in the world, and then there's, uh, there's an attractional power of evil. And then on the other hand, because of God's grace, there's the attractional power of God's grace. And so man is, is being alternatively pulled in one direction or the other. But he has within his own heart the ability to go in the direction that he should go in. He should listen to God. He should obey him. He doesn't need God's grace to help him obey. He he didn't believe that that was the case. All he believed was that people exercise their free will. They make a decision to do it or not. That's all it came down to. And so this began the, uh, the great argument between the two of them. So according to the Pelagians, the fall did not affect the children of Adam at all. All it did was bring sin into the world. All right. Adam and Eve sinned. They became sinners. But that didn't make all of their their children sinners and what we would call totally depraved by nature. Then we have the semi-Pelagians. There were many uh, Roman Catholic theologians following after that who um, they didn't want to say that the fall had not corrupted people, that it hadn't uh, it hadn't condemned all of Adam's children to hell. But they did not want to say that man was totally depraved because that would make him incapable of cooperating in his own salvation. Now, Paul, as you remember, as we've been going through this letter, has made it very clear that as man is born into this world, he is absolutely incapable of cooperating in his own salvation. Why? Because he's dead. 
Dead people can't do anything. I'm not going to urge you to test this theory, but you can try. You know, you can ask them, hey, could you help me to carry this? They're just not going to do it. In Ephesians 2, you remember, he said, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, children of wrath. We were destined for hell. We're dead in sins and trespasses. We did the will of the devil willingly. And our wills were hopelessly inclined in that direction. That's what he's been saying. But the semi-Pelagians have said, no, we're sick in our sins and trespasses, but we still have a remnant within us that allows us to uh, cooperate with God. So what they, were, what they were spelling out, or what they believe is going on, if you follow that particular theory in this chapter, is that um, the higher powers of the soul, the reason, the mind, the inner man, those, those things, the pneuma, the spirit within us, they retain their integrity since the fall. But what's happened? They've been weakened, okay? They no longer have that original robustness that Adam had in the garden. And so therefore, they cannot attain the victory over the lower, baser desires that the fall has brought in, or the sarks, the flesh, our outward man. So what they maintain is that in each person, there is this perpetual struggle going on between the inner man and the outer man, between the pneuma and the sarks. They're constantly at war. Uh, even before regeneration, the good and evil principles uh, going on, uh, there's a war going on there between reason and the flesh and so on. And what needs to happen, therefore, for us in order to do the right thing, in order to be saved, for instance, is that the inner man, the pneuma, has to be strengthened by the spirit. We need God's spirit not to bring us to life, but to strengthen us in order for us to, to do the right thing, to turn to God. That's what they're, they're saying here is going on. But that is not what Paul is saying. It is not at all. Um, what we believe that Paul is saying uh, is that, no, I'm, I'm sorry, we, we are totally depraved. And it's the whole soul Okay, the very being of man, the higher, that is, our, our reason and our lower nature. Okay, all of us, the, 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 the inner man, the, the soul of man is totally disabled and made opposite to all spiritual good. We are not willing to believe. We are not willing to do good. Our will is bent hopelessly in a corrupt direction. Consequently, what this means is that the scriptures are not talking about uh, a conflict between the higher and the lower powers of our nature. They are talking about a conflict between nature and our new nature, between the old and the new man. Okay, And it's not really even a conflict. It's an absolute difference between the two. So what we have been seeing here is that Paul says... That what happened to you is that once 
At one point in time, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You had that old nature. Your soul was corrupt. Your heart was dark. Your heart was stony, as Ephesians, uh, Ephesians, Ecclesiastes. No. Uh, um, thank you. Oh, of course. Ezekiel 30. My brain is, is like, I, I really am like Oppie. I can feel like the battery going down. <laughs> one moment. I need to recharge a little here. <laughs> All right, T. Thank you, Lord. Um, so, as uh, Ezekiel thirty-six points out, our hearts are 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 hard and stony. And what happens is God takes out the heart of stone and He puts in its place a new heart, a heart of flesh. And this is an act of new creation within us. He takes that which was old and corrupt and he makes it new. That's the, that's the process of regeneration, new birth. You must be born again, uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus when he came to visit him. Not, you must try harder, Nicodemus. You must reach out for the grace that's available to him. No, you must have the spirits working within your heart changing you fundamentally at the very root. But once that process has taken place, is that the end? The answer is no. God's work in you has just begun. Remember this. When a baby is born, that's the beginning of life. It's not the end of life. It's not we're, we're done. Parents don't say, we've had the baby. Okay, we push it to a side. We're, we're, let's make another baby. You know, that's, that's not it at all. That's not parenting. And in the same way in the church, what happens is we bring people in who are dead in their sins and trespasses. We preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit does that effectual calling, uh, working in their hearts, brings them to new life. And then we begin that process once they've come to faith of sanctifying them of continuing that, that, that wonderful process by which they, they become who they are. Who are they? By adoption, remember, they are members of the family of God now. They are fundamentally different. Before they were rebels, they were enemies, they were going to hell, they, they were rightly under God's condemnation. Now they are children of God. Now they are on their way for heaven. And so what are we trying to do? We are trying to fit them for heaven. We're trying to, to get them ready for where they're going, to get them ready for eternity, and to make them useful to the Lord, to glorify him, to worship him here on earth. So what he is saying is that the Spirit of God dwells in the renewed soul and it begins to give the soul its own character. You know how the soul, how, uh, sorry, the Holy Spirit lives to glorify the person of Christ. And so as the Holy Spirit dwells in us and we are conformed to the image that he wants to make us into, what becomes our purpose? Our purpose becomes to glorify Christ. That's how you can tell a spirit-indwelt person, isn't it? The person lives their life not to glorify themselves, not to serve some object or, or means or even a denomination or anything. They live to glorify Christ. And they don't have to do it in a, in a showy way or it's just it, it oozes out of them. It's, it's part of their very life. So by the inner man then, is not the, the soul as opposed to the body or the rational, uh, you know, disconnected from the sensual, but, 
but rather it is what is being spoken. It's the, it's the whole inner man, everything that we are. And the power that he's asking for is that the Spirit of God would conform them to the image of Christ, their Savior. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And the unrenewed man knows nothing of this. That's the problem. He can't understand it. Because what's happened? Well, a fundamental change has taken place. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So I could have actually condensed that all down to one little sentence by Calvin where he says this. The prayer of Paul that the saints may be strengthened does not mean that they may be eminent and flourishing in the world, but that with respect to the kingdom of God, their minds may be made strong by divine power that they may grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, be conformed to his image, give him the glory. And that, brethren, is our calling. Not that we would flourish in, in the worldly sense, but that we would be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ, to become what we truly are. You're part of the family of God. Your inheritance is not here on earth. If it was, that's very sad. If your treasure's here on earth, then it's just sand, and it's all going to be burned up someday. It's passing away. If your treasure is in heaven, then you have an inheritance incorruptible, which has been set aside for you. It's eternal, and it's something that we should be looking forward to. You are a new man. You're a new woman. You're part of a new family. You have a new identity. No matter what people call you or how they despise you or how they make fun of you or so on, you have nothing to fear because you're God's child. That's who you are really at heart. And so therefore, don't be afraid of what men can do to you because they can't separate you from the love of God. They can't kick you out of the family. It's Christ who's made you part of his body. It's Christ who's conforming you to his image. And it's Christ, God willing, who will greet you at the end of your journey and say, well done, O good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I hope that's your great hope and your great joy when you reach the end. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I just want to thank you for keeping me upright for uh, the last few minutes. And I pray, Lord, that um, your word, the words that you gave to Paul would resonate in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we would not think that we are the authors of our own salvation or that we cooperate in its uh, process, but that rather, Lord, we would understand that we need that, that total transformation that only you can make, taking out the heart of stone, putting in the heart of flesh, changing our will, and then conforming us to the image of Christ, and that we would rejoice in it. Thank you that our identity is found in Jesus Christ, not in anything in this world. And help us, O oh Lord, to live like that. Help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as part of our family, and to really acknowledge them as such. I do pray now, Lord, that you would cause all those who have heard me uh, to grow. I do pray, Lord, that they too would, would be strengthened in their inner man as well. And we pray this.